Chapters 22 and 23 of Problems in American Democracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Problems in American Democracy by Times Williamson. Chapter 22 The Negro. 244. Origin of the American Negro. Early in the 17th century, the scarcity of labor in the American colonies led to the introduction of African Negroes as slaves. In response to the demand for slave labor on the southern plantations, the importance of Negroes increased steadily during the next century. The slave trade was nominally abolished in 1808, but Negroes continued to be brought in until the Civil War period. In September 1862, President Lincoln proclaimed abolished both the slave trade and the institution of slavery in the United States. The legality of this act was substantiated in 1865 by the 13th Amendment to the Federal Constitution. 245. Rise of the Negro Problem the Emancipation Proclamation, followed by the 13th Amendment, conferred freedom upon four million slaves. In 1868, the 14th Amendment made the freed Negroes citizens of the United States, and in 1870, the 15th Amendment enfranchised them. Largely as the result of these measures, the problem of the slave developed into the present Negro problem. The racial differences between the white and the Negro, as well as the demoralizing effects of slavery, promised to render difficult the adjustment of the Negro to American life. The situation was made more serious by the suddenness of emancipation and by the fact that the vote was extended the Negroes before most of them were ready for it. The economic, social, and political upheaval affected in the South by the war, together with the bitterness with which many Southern white men regarded the newly freed Negroes, also contributed to the difficulty of the situation. Lastly, the Negro became a problem because of the lack of a national program in his behalf. 246. Numbers and Distribution in 1920, the federal census gave 10,463,131 as the Negro population of the United States. According to these figures, the Negro constitutes slightly less than one-tenth of our total population. Eighty-five percent of the Negroes live in the South. In Mississippi and South Carolina, the Negro exceeds the white population, while in several other southern states, the Negro constitutes from one-fourth to one-half of the total population. About three-fourths of our Negroes live in the rural districts. There is, however, an important migratory movement which operates to decrease this percentage. There is a growing tendency for southern Negroes to leave the rural districts and to move cityward, Chiefly because of the economic attractions of urban life, many rural Negroes are moving toward the southern city. In search of social equality, as well as greater economic opportunities, many southern Negroes are migrating to the cities of the north. 247. Adaptability of the Negro from one important angle, civilization is the process of getting along with one's environment, partly by changing that environment, and partly by adapting oneself to external conditions. An important characteristic of the Negro, not usually taken into account, 
is his adaptability. Ours is predominantly a white man's civilization, and we are accustomed to think of the Negro as an individual who finds it more or less difficult to fit into our way of living. And yet, one reason for believing that the Negro has a capacity for modern civilization is that he has survived until the present time. Compare the Negro in this regard with the American Indian, who, despite his many noble traits, has fared poorly under the white man's civilization. The Indians of Cuba, for example, were so proud and unbending that they died out under the slavery which the early Spanish imposed upon them. The Negro, because of his teachableness and his passive strength, not only survived slavery, but has weathered freedom under very disadvantageous circumstances. 248. Progress Since the Civil War the Negro has made considerable progress since the Civil War. Many Negroes have become independent farmers and artisans, owing a considerable amount of property. Despite the backwardness of Negro schools, great progress has been made in the matter of decreasing Negro illiteracy. Whereas, at the close of the Civil War, some 90% of the Negroes were illiterate, less than a third of our present Negro population is illiterate. In art, literature, and science, the Negro has already made a tolerable showing. Altogether, it is likely that an able and constructive leadership is being developed among the Negroes. 249. Present Economic Condition In spite of the substantial progress made since the Civil War, however, the present economic condition of the Negro is unsatisfactory. The great majority of Negroes are unskilled laborers of a shiftless disposition. Because he is frequently neither a dependable nor an efficient worker, the average Negro tends to receive low wages. The Negro is not skilled in manufacturing or mechanical lines, and he is kept out of the higher trades and professions by reasons of illiteracy and social barriers. Very often, the southern Negro is a tenant farmer, carelessly tilling a small plot of land and mortgaging his crop in order to secure the bare necessities of life. Large families, inadequately supported and reared under insanitary living conditions, are characteristic of the southern Negro. The failure to save money and the inability to protect themselves against exploitation by unscrupulous white men are characteristic weaknesses of many Negroes. 250. Present Social Condition Though decreasing steadily, Negro illiteracy is still high. This is a serious evil. Not only does illiteracy bar the Negro from the education and training of which he is in such great need, but it allows unscrupulous persons to swindle and exploit him. The Negro furnishes an abnormally large preparation of our prison population. Whether or not this is partly the result of racial characteristics, it is uncertain that the bad economic and social conditions surrounding Negro life lead to a high degree of criminality. In justice to the Negro, it should be noted that in many communities he is apprehended and convicted more often than is the white culprit. Acts which would go unpunished, or even unnoticed if committed by white men, often arouse the community and lead to severe punishment when committed by Negroes. Statistics on Negro crime are also influenced by the fact that the poverty of the Negro often causes him to go to jail, while the white offender escapes with a fine. 
A serious evil is race mixture between Negroes and whites. This has gone on since colonial times, until, at the present time, probably more than half of the Negroes in the United States have some degree of white blood. Such mixtures, while probably not disastrous from the standpoint of biology, have unfortunate consequences socially. Generally, the mulatto offspring are forced to remain members of the Negro group, where they are subjected to social surroundings which too often encourage disease, vice, and degeneracy. The majority of the states now have laws forbidding marriage between Negroes and whites. Both white and Negro leaders agree that race mixture ought to be stopped. 251. Present Political Condition The 15th Amendment declared that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Yet, in many southern states, the Negro is barred from the polls. In many northern cities where the Negro is allowed the ballot, his ignorance and irresponsibility make him the prey of political bosses who control his vote. The question of Negro suffrage will be treated later. Here we may content ourselves with noting that the Negro's right to vote is often restricted. In the South, at least, it is also true that the Negro has but little share either in making the laws or in administering them. 252. Urgent Nature of the Negro Problem the Negro problem was never of more pressing importance than it is today. Illiteracy is still perilously high, Negro crime is becoming more serious, and the cityward tendency of the Negro is increasing his susceptibility to disease and vice. In spite of prohibitive laws, racial intermixture is continuing, and the problem of mixed blood is becoming more and more acute. Social unrest among the masses of Southern Negroes is increasing. The World War created new aims and aspirations among thousands of Negroes. New leaders are arising to preach racial equality for the Negro. Old leaders are, in many cases, becoming more impatient with the attitude of the white population. 253. Hesitancy in Attacking the Problem the American people have been singularly backward about grappling with the problem of fitting 10 million Negro citizens into the fabric of American democracy. One explanation of this backwardness is that until recently, many have believed that the Negro would die out under freedom. This expectation has not been realized, for while the Negro population is increasing less rapidly than is the white population, it is nevertheless increasing. The Negro is not dying out, nor can he be deported to Liberia or other colonies, as was often suggested in the last century. The Negro is here to stay, and his problems must be solved. 254. Need of a Consistent Program Many institutions and individuals have attacked various phases of the Negro problem with courage and success but we are in need of a unified and comprehensive program rather than of a series of unrelated endeavors. Above all, what is needed is not impassioned opinion or cure-all schemes, but rather the development of a sound and comprehensive program which shall attack the problem from a number of angles at the same time. Such a program must have a double end in view. First, the immediate needs of the Negro must be met. 
Second, we must permit the Negro to be trained toward a position in which he will be able to play a useful and honorable role in our national life. Thus, the great comprehensive purpose of this program is to help the Negro adapt himself to American life, to aid him in fitting in with our economic, social, and political institutions, and to encourage him to contribute to the development of American culture to the best of his ability. 255. Education. Education is the most important element of any program designed to help the Negro. Ability to read and write, the habit of study, training and correct thinking, all are of such basic value that it is difficult to understand why we have so long neglected the education of the Negro. We spend three or four times as much for the education of a white child per capita as for the education of the Negro child. Negro schools are sparsely distributed, they are poorly equipped, and they are sadly hampered by lack of competent teachers. Clearly, we must spend vast sums on Negro education if we are to expect marked improvement in the Negro's social and economic condition. We cannot expect the Negro to cease being a problem until he has been trained in the fundamentals of citizenship. The inadequate provision for the education of the Negro, says the Southern University Race Commission, is more than an injustice to him. It is an injury to the white man. The South cannot realize its destiny if one-third of its population is undeveloped and inefficient. 256. Economic Adjustment The Negro cannot be expected to become a thrifty, responsible citizen until he is rendered capable of earning a decent living at productive work. He must acquire the habit of working steadily and efficiently under a system of free contract. This economic readjustment, many students of the Negro problem believe, will be attained largely through industrial education. We already have several excellent industrial training schools for Negroes, including Hampton and Tuskegee. The latter was made famous by Booker T. Washington, an ex-slave who devoted his life to the economic readjustment of his people. A great deal more must be done in this direction. In spite of the excellent beginnings made at Hampton and Tuskegee, not more than 1% of our Negroes have the privilege of industrial education. More adequate instruction is needed in methods of agriculture and stock raising, in the various crafts, and in those professions for which the Negro seems fitted. The South needs labor badly, but she cannot use her millions of Negroes effectively until they are turned into competent and dependable workers. The Negro appears to have little aptitude for mechanical work or for mill and factory employment. Diversified agriculture on a small scale seems to be the most promising industry for him and one in which he ought consistently to be encouraged. 257. The Need for Cooperation no permanent solution of the Negro's difficulties can be attained without the friendly cooperation of all parties concerned. Most of our Negroes live in the South, but the Negro is no more a purely Southern question than Japanese immigration is purely a Californian problem. We are one nation, and the problems of one section are the problems of the whole. The South must not be left alone, either, to neglect the Negro, or to struggle with his difficulties as best she can. Generous aid must be extended her by the North, East, and West before we can expect a solution of the Negro question. 
Furthermore, there must be cooperation between the leaders of the Negro and white races. Otherwise, energy will be wasted and interracial bitterness created. Very promising beginnings in this direction have recently been made in the South. Nevertheless, it is to be regretted that many leaders, both white and Negro, are still prone to propose remedies for the Negro problem, which serve their own interests, but which show little or no regard for the rights of the other group or for the welfare of the nation. Above all, there must be a firm resolve to work toward a fair solution and an earnest desire to be just and humane. Hard and unpleasant facts cannot be argued away, but at least they can be treated rationally. No solution can be reached except through law and order. Neither violence nor deceit can solve this or any other problem. Race riots and lynchings are proof that those who engage in them are unfit to carry on the work of American democracy. 258. The Promise of the Negro there is a good deal of discussion as to whether or not the Negro race is merely backward or whether it is an inferior race. Those contending that the Negro is only backward believe that ultimately he can be fitted into the fabric of American life. Those insisting that he is inferior declare that all attempts to adapt the Negro to American life will prove unavailing. Academic discussions of this sort are not to the point. As to whether or not the Negro is backward or inferior, and as to precisely what each of these terms implies, there must always be a good deal of dispute. For practical purposes, it is enough to admit that the Negro cannot now do many of the things which the average white man can do, and that in so far as this is true, the Negro is less effective as a citizen. At the same time, it should be frankly recognized that the Negro has shown himself capable of substantial progress. It will be more appropriate to discuss the inferiority of the Negro when he has failed to react to the most comprehensive, intelligent, and consistent program which we are able to draw up. This we have not done yet, and until it is done, we shall have less cause to deny the Negro a capacity for civilization than the Negro will have cause to complain of our unhelpful attitude toward him. So far as we now know, there is no scientific justification for believing that the masses of American Negroes cannot ultimately be trained to a useful sphere in American life. End of chapter 22. Chapter 23. The Family. 259. Significance of the Family. From whatever angle we approach society, the family is the ultimate unit and basis. The whole fabric of civilization, whether considered from an economic, a social, or a political standpoint, depends upon the integrity of the family and upon the wholesomeness of the home life centering about the father, mother, and children. The home is the nursery of our fundamental institutions. It is the origin of our physical and mental inheritance. It is the center of our training for private and public life. It is the moral and religious fount which nourishes the ideals and belief which fashion our lives and mold our character. A nation built upon decaying homes is bound to perish. A nation composed of normal prosperous families is in a good way to perpetuate itself. It is of the very greatest importance, therefore, that we inquire into the character and tendencies of the American family. 260. The Family in the Middle Ages 
Fully to appreciate the nature of the modern family, we must know something of the family as it existed in Europe and in the Middle Ages. Unity was the striking characteristic of the medieval family. Economically, it was very self-sufficing. That is to say, most of the food, clothing, and other necessities consumed by it were prepared by the family members. Very little in the way of education and recreation existed beyond the family circle. In religious activities, the family played an important role, family worship under the leadership of the father being a common domestic function. The medieval family was stable, partly because legal and religious authority was concentrated in the hands of the father, partly because the family members were economically interdependent, and partly because the social and religious interests of the family members tended to coincide. Divorce was uncommon, and the children generally remained in the home until their majority had been attained. 261. The Family in Modern Times we have already seen that since the close of the Middle Ages, and especially during the last two centuries, important economic, social, and political changes have been going on in civilized society. In common with other social institutions, the family has been greatly influenced by these changes. The family, which we have described as the medieval type, has been either destroyed or greatly modified, and a new type is being developed. Probably this new type of family will present substantial gains over the family of the Middle Ages. Nevertheless, the period of transition is fraught with danger. A great problem of American democracy is to aid in the social readjustment of the family. In order that we may be competent to aid in this readjustment, let us discover in what ways the family has been modified by the economic, social, and political changes referred to above. 262. The Industrial Revolution and the Family We have examined somewhat in detail the effect of the Industrial Revolution upon our economic life. It remains to be pointed out that the same phenomenon has profoundly affected the character of our most vital social institution, the family. Directly or indirectly, the Industrial Revolution has affected family life among all classes of the population. To some extent, Capitalism has given rise to a class of idle rich, living upon the proceeds of permanent investments, and resorting to extravagance and loose methods of living in order to occupy their time. This development is doubly unfortunate. In the first place, it renders difficult the maintenance of normal homes among the idle rich. In the second place, the tendency of certain types of individuals to imitate and envy the idle rich encourages false standards and leads to a depraved moral sense. To those classes which furnish the majority of our professional men, the complex division of labor has brought a serious danger. So great is the need of specialized training among these groups that marriage is often delayed until after the age of 30. The individual is then in a better position to support a family, but often his habits are so firmly fixed that he finds it difficult to adapt himself to family life. Even more important, perhaps, have been the effects of the Industrial Revolution upon the masses of wage earners. Men earning low wages are often unable to marry, or if they assume that responsibility, they are unable properly to support their families. In spite of the fact that capitalism has greatly increased our material welfare, the dependence of large numbers of people upon day wages increases the hazards of family life. 
Industrial accidents, occupational diseases, or the interruption of earnings by strikes and unemployment, any one of these mishaps may work a hardship upon the wage earner's family. Poverty may induce child labor, deprive the family of proper food and other necessities, and retard the education of the children. Finally, it may so emphasize the elements of strain and worry that parents are unable to give proper attention to the training of their children. 263. The Factory System and the Home The Industrial Revolution has lessened the economic importance of the home. The typical modern family is no longer self-sufficing, but is dependent upon the factory system for many commodities formerly prepared within the home circle. Spinning, weaving, tailoring, shoemaking, soap making, and other industries have moved out of the home and into the factory. Even the preparation of food is increasingly a function of agencies outside the home. Especially in cities, there has been a steady development of restaurants, delicatessen shops, and factories engaged in the large-scale preparation of bread, canned soups, and other products. There is thus less work to be done in the home than formerly. At the same time, the development of our industrial life has notably increased the amount of work to be done outside the home. The outcome of these two complementary forces has been that not only the father, but often the mother and the half-grown children as well, have been drawn into industry. As a result of this development, the economic interdependence of the family has been destroyed, and the way has been opened to the disintegration of the home. Social contracts between family members have decreased, while the specialized character of the individual's daily work has operated to break down the common interests which family members formerly had outside the home. 264. Lack of Preparation for Homemaking The factory system has rendered more difficult the preparation of our boys and girls for homemaking, where boys go out to work at an early age and are deprived of home training during the adolescent period, neither father nor mother has the opportunity properly to acquaint them with the nature and responsibilities of homemaking. Girls, very often, are reared without adequate knowledge of cooking, sewing, and other household arts. This is due partly to the transfer of many of the domestic functions to specialists beyond the home and partly to the fact that where girls go into industry, they spend most of their time outside the home. In the case of both boys and girls, the decreased amount of time spent in the home not only prevents proper training by the parents, but it stresses outside interests which are too often opposed to domestic ideals. Many parents either allow or encourage their children to acquire frivolous habits. As the result of all these factors, both young men and young women frequently marry without having been properly prepared for the responsibilities of homemaking. 265. Difficulties of Homemaking in Crowded Cities With the development of manufacturing, a larger and larger proportion of our people have made their homes in large cities. To many, city life has brought increased opportunities for education and recreation. Nevertheless, it is difficult to maintain a normal life in a crowded city. Urban life is highly artificial. Simple and wholesome amusements are less common than expensive and injurious forms of recreation. The noise and jar of city life often result in strain and jaded nerves. The scarcity and high cost of house room is, for many city dwellers, an unavoidable evil 
The poor are cramped into small, uncomfortable tenements, while even the well-to-do are frequently found in congested apartment houses. Under such circumstances, the home often becomes merely a lodging place. Social life is developed out of, rather than in, the home. For the children of the poor, there is often no yard and no adequate provision for recreation. Among the rich, conditions are somewhat better, though in fashionable apartment houses, children are frequently objected to by neighboring tenants or banned by landlords. 266. Economic Independence of Women Until very recently, a married woman was economically dependent upon her husband, but one of the effects of the Industrial Revolution has been to make many women economically independent. Women are entering the industrial field with great rapidity, and their presence there is now taken as a matter of course. Many women now avoid marriage, partly because domestic interests fail to attract them, and partly because they have become genuinely interested in industry. Where domesticity is the ultimate aim, many women delay marriages because self-support renders them both able and desirous of retaining their independence for a considerable period. Domestic tranquility is sometimes disturbed by the fact that wives were formerly self-supporting girls. In most cases, wives are dependent upon their husbands in money matters, a situation which is apt to irritate women who were formerly self-supporting. The husband is often inclined to rate the generalized character of housework as being of less importance than his own highly specialized work. The wife's irritation at this may be increased by the fact that often she, too, believes that her domestic duties are less dignified and less valuable than her former work. Not only has the former independence of the wife made her less tolerant of domestic wrongs and slights, but the realization that she can support herself frequently encourages her to seek a divorce. The temptation to take the step is increased by the fact that public opinion now rarely frowns upon a divorced woman. This is in striking contrast to the situation 200 years ago, when most divorced women were not only unable to support themselves, but were socially ostracized. 267. Political Emancipation of Women until very recently, women have been legally and politically subordinate to men. As recently as a century ago, women in the leading countries of the world were allowed neither to vote, nor to contract debts in their own name, nor to hold or will property. But within the last century, women have been emancipated politically. Property rights have been extended them. The growth of the woman's movement has resulted in the winning of female suffrage. Economic independence and social freedom have combined with political emancipation to emphasize the spirit of individualism among women. Politics and club work have, in the eyes of many wives and mothers, become more attractive than domestic concerns, with a resultant neglect of the home. Higher education for women, including a wider knowledge of legal matters, has acquainted women with their legal rights and privileges and has made them familiar with the steps necessary to secure a divorce. 268. Individualism may be exaggerated. The American people are celebrated for their strongly individualistic character. This trait is closely related to the initiative and self-reliance, which may have helped toward our industrial success. On the other hand, individualism may be carried to the point of selfishness. 
It is desirable, of course, that both men and women maintain high standards of living and that they cultivate their respective personalities. It should be noted, however, that marriage is often delayed or altogether avoided because of selfish ambition and the desire to live a carefree and self-centered life. The insistence which many young people place upon personal rights has encouraged the belief that marriage is intended for man's and woman's convenience rather than for the building of normal homes and the development of community life. In too many marriages, the contracting parties selfishly refuse to make the mutual concessions necessary in married life and so wreck their domestic happiness. 269. The Divorce Evil Family instability has been increased by the demoralizing influences which we have been discussing. A familiar symptom of family instability is the divorce rate. One out of every eight or nine marriages in the United States is dissolved by divorce. Not only do we have more divorces than all of the rest of the world together, but our divorce rate is increasing three times as fast as is our population. The value of these statistics is affected by two factors. In the first place, much domestic unhappiness does not express itself in the separation of husband and wife, or where such separation does take place, it may not be through the divorce court. Among the city poor, for example, desertion is four times as common as is divorce. Thus, the divorce rate indicates only a share of family instability. The second modifying factor, however, lessens the force of our divorce statistics. A high divorce rate is to be interpreted with care. Our divorce rate is higher than that of European countries, but it should be remembered that in those countries where customs, laws, and religious beliefs are relatively conservative, families may be held together legally in spite of the fact that they have already disintegrated. Thus, family life may be as unstable in a country in which the divorce rate is low as in a country in which the divorce rate is high. 270. Laxity of our divorce laws. Although divorce may sometimes be necessary, it is clear that in many of the states of the Union, divorce laws are too lax. The practice of the states as regards divorce is divergent. In South Carolina, divorce is absolutely prohibited. In the remaining states, there is a variable number of grounds upon which divorce may be secured. Divorces are often rushed through in the courts partly because of the overworked character of the divorce tribunals, and partly because public opinion tolerates the lax administration of divorce laws. In some states, divorces have been secured in 15 minutes, being granted without any attempt at solemnity, with no adequate investigation, and with numerous opportunities for collusion between the parties involved. The effect of this laxness has been to encourage the dissolution of the home for trivial and improper causes. 271. The Question of Stricter Divorce Laws Uniform divorce laws among the several states are now being agitated. The essential provisions of such laws may be outlined as follows. It is desirable to have a court of domestic relations, which shall carefully and wisely attempt a reconciliation of the husband and wife before divorce proceedings are resorted to. Applicants for divorce should be bona fide residents of the state in which the suit is filed and should be required to reside in the state two years before a decree of absolute divorce is granted. In some states, at least, the number of grounds upon which divorce may be secured should be reduced. An adequate investigation should be undertaken, both in order to determine the justice of the suit 
and to prevent collusion. The primary aim of the divorce laws should be to allow relief from a vicious and hopelessly wrecked union, but at the same time to prevent the misuse of the statutes by irresponsible and unscrupulous persons. 262. Laxity of our marriage laws. The fact that unwise marriages are an immediate cause of divorce leads back to the question of our marriage laws. Marriage laws often permit the mating of couples unfit for homemaking. In some states, the authorities are not over-careful to prevent the marriage of persons who are mentally defective. There is, among the several states, no agreement as to the legal age of marriage, and no agreement as to the relationship within which marriage is forbidden. Hasty unions have been encouraged by the lack of solemnity, which characterizes civil marriage. Marriage is more and more a civil contract, devoid of religious sanctions and spiritual associations. Many consider marriage as a civil relation, not radically different from any other contract. The effect of this changed attitude has been to encourage the enactment of loose marriage laws and the careless administration of sound marriage laws. 273. The question of stricter marriage laws. Stricter marriage laws are being advocated in many states. We know far too little about eugenics to warrant prediction as to the type of individuals best fitted to normal homes, but it is clearly desirable to prohibit the marriage of all mental defectives. There are also good reasons for the restriction of the marriage of minors, of persons between whose ages there is a wide disparity, and of persons who are members of widely divergent races. It would probably check hasty marriages to increase the length of time elapsing between the issuance of the marriage license and the performance of the ceremony. If modern marriages were more distinctly upon a religious basis, it is likely that many persons who now rush thoughtlessly into marriage would be led seriously to reflect upon the significance of the step. 274. Law Not the Ultimate Remedy for Family Instability the careful enactment and wise administration of sound laws on marriage and divorce will undoubtedly check the number of unhappy and unsuccessful marriages. Nevertheless, law is not the ultimate remedy for family instability. Unduly restrictive marriage laws may result in abnormal tendencies among certain classes of the population, while severe prohibitions upon divorce may prevent individuals from securing release from a hopelessly wrecked marriage. Divorce is only a symptom of deeper lying evils. Really, to remove the dangers which threaten the integrity of the family, we must go deeper than legislation. 275. Economic and Social Readjustment One fundamental method of safeguarding the family is to counteract the injurious effects of the Industrial Revolution. Poverty must be lessened or eliminated so that men will be enabled to marry and support families decently. The evils of overcrowding must be attacked in the interest of a normal home life. Mothers, pensions, and social insurance are desirable methods of protecting the laborer's family against the risks of industry. The prohibition of child labor and the safeguarding of women in industry will also tend to keep the family intact and to permit proper home training. In short, any measures which will help individuals to adjust themselves to the economic and social changes of the present age will provide a more firm and solid foundation for a normal family life. 276. Education and the Family 
Far more fundamental than legislation on marriage and divorce is the training of young people toward a fuller appreciation of the responsibilities of homemaking. In the problem of family instability, laws reach symptoms, while education attacks causes. By education is here meant not merely formal training in the school, but character building of every type. This includes training in the home, in the school, and in the church. Only when boys and girls are accorded sound training by these various agencies will they be properly prepared to make homes. Our whole educational system ought to emphasize the importance of a pure and wholesome family life. The sanctity of the marriage bond, the seriousness of family responsibilities, and the duty to rear a normal, healthy family ought to be impressed upon every boy and girl. Young people should be taught to consider adolescence as a period of preparation for home building. During this period, it is the duty of the boy to fit himself for the proper support of a family, while the girl ought to feel obliged to become familiar with the tasks and duties of housekeeping. The choice of a husband or wife ought to be made, not on the basis of passing fancy, but with regard to a life of mutual service. Extreme individualism ought to be discouraged. Personal pleasure ought to be interrupted in the light of marriage as a partnership. Above all, marriage should be faced with the realization that it requires adaptation and concessions on the part of both husband and wife. Mutual consideration and respect must predominate in the future American family, while the spirit of impatience and selfishness must be eliminated. End of chapter 23